This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome, guys, to episode 346 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Jeremy Robinson. Now, Jeremy is a retired professional rugby athlete, actually playing for teams all over the world. And then he transitioned into law enforcement, becoming a police officer. And after several years, found himself as the strength and conditioning coach for his department. So a very unique perspective, not only on his own career, but coaching many, many high-level tactical athletes, including part of the team that facilitated the rescue of the Thai soccer team that was trapped in the caves a few years ago during the monsoon. So, so many interesting stories and perspectives in this conversation. Before we get to that interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether it's individually, whether it's within your organization. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can make sure they get to every ear hole that needs to hear them on planet Earth. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jeremy Robinson. Enjoy. Jeremy, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I know it's morning for you and evening for me. These Aussie ones are always, I have to focus extra hard to make sure I don't screw up the dates. So (laughs) thank you for coming on. 
No, James, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on uh, your podcast. Uh, I listened to many of the uh, podcasts over the years, so um, thank you very much, and it's an honor to be on it. Brilliant. Well, I want to say thank you to Dan, who I think was the one that initially connected us, and obviously Mick Shirley is a, a mutual friend as well. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I know both the individuals, uh, both professionals, and uh, had a, a personal relationship and, uh, and a working one with them both for some time now, so it's good. Brilliant. All right, well, very, very first question. Where on planet Earth exactly are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in Canberra, which is a, the Australian capital territory, so it's the capital of Australia. Um, population's about 500,000, so... For all your listeners uh, worldwide, it's probably three hours drive south of Sydney, Australia, um, just to put a perspective on it. Um, yeah, and very cold at the moment. We're in winter here at the moment, so we're getting down to zero degrees. Brilliant. Now, my, my pipe dream, if I just finish writing a book and if that actually does half decent, <laughs> is to, <laughs> to leave the Florida blistering heat at some point in our summer and go to Australia and, and uh, New Zealand to, to uh, snowboard just so I can get, out, get away and actually be in the cold for at least a week or so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it mixes up. We have uh, yeah, a vast dry summer as well, so we get up to the 40s in summer, so very contrasting winters and summers. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, um, before we get to your journey, just just because I think it's a kind of pertinent thing to ask everyone on planet Earth at the moment, what are you seeing from Australia regarding the COVID crisis and and the Aussie response to it? Yeah, it's funny at the moment, uh, just just recently Melbourne's uh, been affected greatly, uh, the big city of Melbourne, which... Uh, from Canberra, it's down south. Um, it's probably the second second biggest largest city in Australia compared to Sydney. So they've just had a massive spike and increase in the COVID. So um, in relation to that now, all the different states and territories are starting to put the measures in place about the border restrictions and, and travelling uh, to and forth. So um, it's definitely changed um, how we deal with life at the moment. Yeah, and are you, are you seeing the same kind of things that we're seeing in America? And I remember, you know, last time I was in Australia was a long, long time ago. But here, we are definitely more vulnerable because of the ill health of a lot of our population, because of the lifestyle, you know, choices. Um, what are you seeing as far as actual um, significant health effects or death amongst Australians? Yeah, it's 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 interesting just watching what's uh, happening. It's mainly affecting the elderly. So, uh, like I was watching some of the news this morning down in Melbourne, and it's it's affected about forty of their elderly retirement homes, so to speak. So, uh, I think the elderly's greatly impacted at present within within Australia, as I can sort of see. So they're the high risk. Um, and just, just personally on that, yeah, my mother's just recovering from um, some cancer herself, so she's been through some chemo. And uh, so I'm trying to, yeah, I was trying to expose or not expose her to a lot of these things outdoors at the moment. So, um, yeah, so I think it's mainly just the elderly and not too much um, from the other age categories that we can see the risks. Yeah, which is great. This is what we want. We don't want the elderly in any way, shape or form, you know, to get ill. But I think that's the message that needs to be you know, added to this crisis is, hey, if you are healthy, then you're more resilient. So as this goes through the motions, as a nation, we need to learn the lesson that the healthier we are, the more resilient we are physically to viruses like this. 
Yes, that, that 100% correct, James. Of that, so it's just all about uh, lifestyle and how we uh, we look after our health, and then the health of um, trying to educate the health of our uh, loved ones around us, and and then it comes to organisational, I suppose, in the workplaces as well. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, then to your own journey. So, where were you born, and then what was your family unit like? What did your parents do, and how many siblings? Yeah, I was born here in Canberra, where I'm currently working in. Um, I've got one brother. Uh, he's younger than me, two years younger than me. Uh, and my mother and father, my, my father was uh, a builder by trade, so a bricklayer and uh, carpenter. So mum was more or less, as we grew up, stayed at home. She was more of a stay-at-home mum. Very loving family. Mother and father um, supported myself and my brother growing up through our years. Um, so more or less, dad just used to go out to work, um, the hard-working father on the on the tools and the trade. Uh, and mum was the uh, stay-at-home mum, looking after uh, myself and my brother until you get until you got home in the evenings. Brilliant. Well, I know you ended up in professional sports. So, what about as a young man? What were your favourite sports back then? Yeah, go right through. Uh, I think around five years of age, that's when um, I started to get into sport, rugby league particularly, it's a contact sport, so um, going through early in schools, I like sport playing anything, so whether it was cricket, soccer, football, but the main one I got into was, uh, was rugby league, and I think my parents didn't push me, but they wanted me to, to get into some team environment where I started to meet meet different kids and try different things. So uh, I really stuck to rugby league and liked rugby league, and then um, yeah, just continued on with uh, playing that into my teens and through the, the schooling. Okay, so with the uh, with again your journey to school age, what were your career aspirations as a young boy? Yeah, I really wanted just to be a professional athlete straight away. So I got right into the sports. Um, like I mentioned before, touched on cricket, you know, rugby league, um, soccer and that at school. So every athletics, every school event, I put my hand up into every event, whether any sporting uh, competitions that were going on. So earlier on, the aspirations were I just want to be a professional in some sporting capacity and I really yeah, it's really focused on uh, the rugby, the rugby league. Um, so it wasn't really much outside of that growing up. Like um, I just remember days on end, my brother and myself out in our front lawn at our mum and dad's house, just uh, tackling each other and just more or less belting the crap out of one another until uh, until the sun went down and mum and dad told us to get inside. So uh, so from there, yeah, I just um, I just really focused on playing as much of that sport as I could to obviously better myself and then as the years went on just um, got into some representative kind of teams within the rugby league um, as I went into my year, uh, teens um, and then it was mainly mainly around the 18 years of age sort of the, the college aspect of it where it was an opportunity then to look at really if I wanted to make a goal of it to become a professional Right, and then what about your training? Because, I mean, you're going to, obviously, as we'll hear, you end up um, in strength and conditioning specifically, but how did you train yourself, or did you have any any um, mentors in that journey that really kind of made you realize how important that component was? I think earlier on, um, 
before we went into the, the semi-pro and professional, I just loved training. So with school-based, with any kind of sport, obviously the skills component in there, like with footballers kicking the ball, knowing how to tackle, and then looking at the physical demands of the sport and the game. So um, earlier on, yeah, into the teens, I, um, I, I had a fair interest in keeping myself fit um, uh, and mainly just going and getting introduced, slowly going to the gym um, and just like just playing with my mates really and just training with my mates. So it's, physical fitness has always been a part of it, the underpinning part of it. But um, yeah, earlier on it was mainly just the, the conditioning we did within our sporting teams environment that I did. I didn't do really much outside of that. I mainly, when I got home, I know from schools and that all the dealers got the football and we had two big trees across the road and uh, I just used them as goalposts to practice kicking, goal kicking. So. I suppose earlier on there wasn't much conditioning um, specific, but that more or less as I went in and got older and into the semi-pro and pro uh, parts of it, that's where it come more of a, at the forefront of um, linking that skill into the performance space. Right. Well, and you said, like you mentioned, you, you did end up playing professional rugby. So that's narrowed the field incredibly. What now looking back, what attributes did you have that allowed you to play at that high level? Yeah, I think um, I always considered myself as a battler. So I always had to work hard things. So I wasn't actually uh, gifted physically-wise. Like I was never ahead of the pack within all the physical testing. Um, I used to try my heart out, just do everything I could. Um, same with the skills. I just had to keep trying and, and keep on uh, – keep on trying to improve myself. Um, so, and with that, it just become dedication to try and just make sure that I did what I did and could do to get myself a position in the, in the field or the squad. Uh, and it took a lot of hard work. Like I know, as we said, there's a lot of talented athletes in every kind of sport that just, they're just gifted straight away. So they make the games and the, and the, the sport they play look so easy. But for myself, I really had to be, yeah, make sure the physical condition was on song and then I had to obviously work hard constantly at the skill-based element of the game. Yeah, now you started playing for Canberra, is that right? Yeah, I started playing uh, for the Canberra Raiders, which is an NRL club here based in Canberra, which plays in the Australian um, national competition. Um, so, yeah, I just played all my junior representatives and then I um, debuted in the the first grade in 1996 with the Canberra Raiders. Right. So what, what I'm intrigued about is what took you to France? That was on the, the back end of my career at the Canberra Raiders. So I had an opportunity. Um, there was a Super League war the, about the big franchises who owned the, the, uh, the rugby league at the time. And uh, there was an opportunity to leave the Canberra Raiders. I was sort of on the fringe of the first grade at, the sta- at that stage, sort of was in the second second division sort of playing and, and debuted once in the first grade in the top team. But at that stage, the top team had uh, about 15 internationals right through from 1 to one to 13. We had internationals in that top squad. So for me to sort of either look at trying to cementing a first grade spot somewhere else, um, I had to make the decision where I'd probably look elsewhere. And uh, yeah, I was given an opportunity um, to yeah, – to, to go and play in England in the English Super League um, and at the stage Paris Saint-Germain was the club um, 
and I just thought, wow, what an opportunity to sort of go and look at the rest of the world and, and live in Europe and in France and then obviously travel over to the UK and play in a, in a sport. And I was only 22, I think, at the time. So that's where that led me. Brilliant. Now, so many people have come on here, you know, there's a certain point where they realize, okay, I've hit the ceiling as far as my performance in this particular sport. So when did you realize that, you know, you had one season left in you? Yeah, just it was a few little hiccups with some niggles and some injuries um, just at the back end of that season and, and 1997 where there's a few little uh, knee injuries trickling into the game and I was, just wasn't recovering quick enough. So I probably missed six or seven games at a time when I was over there in, in the UK and there started to be some, uh, you know, just some thoughts within myself that, okay, if I'm going to make a, a go at this again, um, am I going to stay here in the UK or am I going to, going to come home? So that's when I just started deciding uh, career-wise that you've got to be a – there's only a top 2 or 3% that make a full-time living out of uh, out of the sport. And I, I've just, just come down to facts. I didn't didn't think I was going to ever be in that category. So that's when the decision come to come back home and look at uh, look at other career aspirations. So lead me through that then. I know you ended up in the strength and conditioning world. So what was your journey from the athlete, excuse me, the athlete themselves to now the the coach of the athlete? Yeah, I think it come back to um, just loving analyzing sport and the physical preparedness that goes with it. So I know how hard and that I had to sort of train through my semi, then going into into the starting into the pro, uh, how hard I had to maintain my physical preparation and, and then obviously overcoming injuries within that collision sport. So it's a high collision sport, as you're probably aware of, and the uh, the trauma and that to recover and go through that mentally at stages too is a big thing. So that obviously played in my mind where looking at something that would then uh, assist and mentor and coach other athletes in whatever sport it would come be. So I thought I'd start looking at uh, getting some studies in the strength and conditioning. And on top of that, that's when sort of uh, the policing uh, thought come into my mind at the same time as well. Okay, so then lead me through that because I think there's going to be some interesting parallels between the rugby athlete and the tactical athlete. So lead me through those parallel um, paths of you know your strength and conditioning as a coach and then the tactical space as well. Yeah, it's, it's right at that time where I thought, yeah, law enforcement would be the would be the the choice um, first to go into there. It was then looking at okay, having my experiences of. Uh, into rugby league and how I physically prepared myself for that, and then the then the uh, on the the other end of the spectrum of joining the police and knowing the importance of physical health into that to that space. So um, it just become a become a mind sort of game. Then whether okay, what career do I sort of take first? So I looked at more or less joining uh, and I come back to Australia to apply and join for the police. Um, and that's where it sort of started from getting back into to law enforcement. Right. So then when did you then be start getting into the strength and conditioning side of the tactical athletes that you work with? 
so that was at the back end of my career. So I had a in law enforcement ten years, so ten years operationally in the uh, in the police, um, from generals duties right through into some various different specialist groups with public order and tactical myself. So and at the back of that ten ten year career is where things started. Uh, as a lot of first responders, as you know, and your listeners, uh, James started. Uh, seen a lot of things and attributed a lot of different things that I thought there was a time where now I might have to start stepping aside from uh, the first response and then look at more or less now how I can best put forward my uh, skills and everything into conditioning these members. So if I was able to uh, get into a position where I could just provide that physical health and uh, well-being strategies to the first responder community, just having the practical experience as well and the operational experience, yeah. So at that end, that's when I started doing further studies um, at the back end of my policing career. Right, so I kind of jumped ahead then. So tell me about coming from the sport of rugby at the highest level pretty much into law enforcement. How were you physically prepared and then how did they hold the bar in your particular department? Um, yeah, with the department, it's various uh, law enforcement agencies have different physical standards to get into. So the physical part of actually getting into the law enforcement wasn't too hard for me because uh, I was just coming out the back end of a, a pro sport career. So I was probably at the you know at a pretty good physical state myself and condition condition wise. So the basic entry testing is um, most organizations just are based around physical health so it wasn't really a task specific op- occupational test at that stage it was more or less your general physical preparedness test with your beep test your push up sit-ups and all that stuff so I didn't find that that too physically demanding to get into the the occupation itself at the time right and then um you mentioned about you know the career taking a beating physically and mentally are there any uh, specific events during your 10 years that you recall that were either either challenging physically or even challenging mentally? Yeah, there was another, uh, the, and you know yourself from uh, a lot of uh, responding, a lot of critical incidents and that there was you know, numerous ones now that you know you, you sort of keep all these in a little box in your brain and whether it does good or doesn't and you learn over time how to handle these stressful situations. But there, there was one incident where oh, myself and my partner were confronted with, with an armed offender. And, yeah, at that stage, uh, I was positioned in a vehicle, in a police vehicle, where I wasn't able to actually get my firearm out or get in a position where I was able to obviously protect myself or my partner. So I felt a bit vulnerable at that stage. So I was jammed up against the uh, in the driver's seat with the belt on and unable to get to my uh, sidearm at the time. So where the offender was presented right next to the vehicle with a firearm. So that was a bit of a, uh, a challenging situation <laughs> um, to be in. And I was lucky that I had a, uh, a re- very experienced uh, officer next to me at the time and he was able to get out of the vehicle and sort of distract the offender uh, with some good communication. Um, but the offender at the time hadn't presented and pointed the firearm at us at, at that stage. He sort of had it by his side. So... So just from that to and from that communication at that stage, uh, I was able to actually just to get out of the, the vehicle, sneak out of the vehicle, and that's when I uh, sort of some of my uh, past football experience come into 
situation where I was able to just crash tackle the offender straight from there and disarm him. So, you know, it was a, a number of them situations of uh, working um, in an environment within law enforcement where that was just day in, day out, day in, day out, seeing been exposed to them critical incidents, um, which which has an effect, effect on you. So, um, and I know a lot of uh, listeners and a lot of uh, your first responder community can uh, well um, attest to certain situations they've been in themselves and and then you just don't get over them at, at a night. So I think for me, joining the police and the law enforcement, it was some initial badge of honour, so to speak, that, you know, if you go to a morgue or you go into seeing something critical, you really just got to suck it up and keep it within yourself. So um, that was something probably wasn't until later on in my career after being exposed to a lot of these critical incidents and situations where there was life and death that it started to um, resonate to me that I need to start to speak to people, whether it was from friends, work colleagues or um, some psychologists because I just, just crept up. But initially I thought, you know, you must just have to soak it up as a, as a police officer and go into the, the morgue and see a, either a dead infant or a dead uh, dead male or female and uh, that's all natural or go to a, 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 an accident or attend a high-risk incident where, you know, a offender might be uh, in a domestic dispute and holding the baby with a knife through its throat. So these are not natural things that every uh, every human has to deal with every day. No, absolutely not. Now, when you look back now, did, what were some of your healthy coping mechanisms? And you, you talked about reaching out and talking to people, which is one of the most important ones. But what were some other healthy ones you realize now helped? And then were there any bad ones that you chose? Yeah, I think um, I didn't turn to any kind of you know drugs or alcohol. I was never a big drinker or turning to uh, which sometimes the law enforcement, the bonding and all that has that um, that really you know after after a shift go and have ten or so beers with your mates and all that. I was never really never really a big drinker or alcohol. So that side of the things for coping didn't really affect me. So I never really turned to that. Um, it was more or less having a good uh, support network. At the time, uh, my uncle had just retired from the police service himself, um, so he was a really good go-to to talk about a lot of things. And the other thing I come back to is just my physical stuff. I just love training and that. But as you mentioned, the, the side effects of that, I, I think I started training, and looking back on it, I did. I just started training too much, too hard. So it was, I was using the physical, physical side of things to try and, cope with a lot of the uh, the workplace stresses that was given to me and then obviously just were, um, led to more or less overtraining and burnout. So as much as I just wanted to exert more physical stuff, so make myself feel better after, just push myself to limits, it actually was having a detrimental effect on me. Um, yeah, so that's one of the, the issues looking back at it that uh, now in the, in the position I've got, where I'm able to be, educate a bit more about is about that overtraining and just um, not only just go and try and beast yourself for a beasting session to deal with because at the end of the day it's just not going to do you any good. But in saying that, uh, James, it's, there's times where going and doing something physical in a different environment did help. So whether I just jumped on a push bike and went into the uh, into the into the mountain areas and just did something where the, the scenery and the the environment was totally relaxed, so I found sort of them, them sort of uh, 
coping mechanisms was all right with the physical aspect, but just different from just obviously just going on the rail machine, just flogging yourself and see how to fall off. Yeah, well, actually, one of your um, fellow TSAC presenters, uh, Jeff Nichols, is a Navy SEAL, um, absolutely blew my mind when he told me about that kind of concept the first time. And, I, you know, we talked about you get off the shift and you're going to, quote, unquote, flush out the stress. And I was that guy, too. It wasn't like I was looking deliberately to go for a hard one, but I didn't identify if that happened to be an ass kicker that morning at my CrossFit gym. I would just go and do it and kill myself on it, you know. But now, understanding that exercise is is an amazing way of, you know, deregulating the nervous system, but understanding which intensity you need to do it as. And like you said, you can, you know, just row gently for or go for a hike up a mountain and, and you're going to do, you know, you're really going to offset that stress. But if you do Murph in bunker gear <laughs> an hour <laughs> after you get off, you're probably going to add stress to stress. Oh, you're dead set, right? And it's just at that, that, that time you're just in, not in that headspace to obviously to bring yourself to understand that because obviously you're just thinking about it at the, at the time just to uh, get out and just try and obliterate what processes and thoughts are in your mind and the best way to do that is just put yourself through a, through a hard session to get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just going back to you know the story with the armed attacker for a moment, um, obviously, defensive tactics are a big kind of hot topic at the moment in America following the George Floyd murder. What are, you know, what are the kind of defensive tactics philosophies in your agency as far as hands-on, you know, cuffing and that kind of thing? Yeah, with, within the, uh, the area I work with, there's, there's different hand-to-hand combat sort of in the, in the tactical units that I work with, but I think a lot of it now comes to and it's whether the, the departments, like we have full-time defensive tactics trainers within the area and concentrate with our with our elite tactical groups, making sure that's part of that the hand-to-hand combat. But I think with the, the generous and depending on in the US, if, if agencies don't have that uh, ability for their officers to undertake them uh, critical stress and skills component that unfortunately they've been a bit underdone so that's where I don't know though where there's certain BJJs Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gyms that are local to these agencies and if there's any bosses in that out there that are, that are listening now it's it's imperative that the organization somehow reach out or because I know there's a lot of a lot of good coaches in these fields willing to give their their free services and that to help the first responders because they understand how critical it is they are but sometimes it just comes down to the administrations and and bosses to make these decisions to allow this process to happen yeah no exactly and this the whole project i've talked about this numerous times is a double-edged sword you know there's the ownership of the individual when you're on your days off you can also visit a jiu-jitsu gym and get even better and go to the range and get better but that you have, you cannot deny the environment where, when you're at work, you need to be supported. You need to be given the ammunition to train with. You need to be given the time to go to, you know, the detach center and and work on your skills. And so, if one or both of those are missing, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you did right, and especially under uh, in critical stress where there's lots of things going on into the into the body at the time. And if it doesn't become second nature and repetitive, that's when. Uh, that's where, unfortunately, um, injuries and death occur to our um, our first responders community, which is just tragic. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well then, um, kind of lead me through your career, like what took you to the different teams, and then ultimately, you know, your decision to to go into the the um, I guess the coaching side again, but the mental and physical coaching. 
Yeah, with within the, the law enforcement, just going through the to prepare physically and arduous preparations for some of the specialist groups that uh, I went into, like the 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 public order and the riot squads to start with, and then into the tactical realm. There was two different capabilities there, so. More or less the hands-on, as we know, the public order. It's more of a hands-on, confrontive, uh, straight in the face of uh, everything out in the front of the, in the streets, uh, devil, uh, you know, dealing with these riots, um, which is happening all over your country at the moment. Um, and then there's the next thing going into the tactical realm, where it's more or less looking at and, and dealing with the the high-risk um, incidents within law enforcement. So both areas had an attraction to me for skill sets and obviously how to physical prepare for that. So again, it was for myself trying to uh, prepare the right way to then be able to sustain the task that was at hand if I went through and was successful in, the, in them roles. So um, the general physical preparation wasn't too bad. I um, Back then, we're talking early 2000s for myself and I didn't really have many uh, other individuals or coaches to go to the physical prepare myself for that. So I'm more or less just relying on my own own background of training coming out of the sports and in the gyms and that how I prepared for that. So um, whereas in now these days coming on 10 years um, and 20 years time that there's more emphasis with that tactical strength coach or the strength coaches that are either embedded somewhere in these organisations or Externally, there's more uh, information out there than there's ever been how to physical prepare for them. But the big thing, James, is uh, getting the right coach that really has that understanding of uh, how to prepare the professionals. I don't really call the tactical athletes because I separate because I've been an athlete myself. I know what the athlete demands are, so I always call them the tactical professionals, whether it's in the military, um, fireys, or or, or um, the law enforcement. So when I'm talking and interpreting my way it's always um even though there's ath- athletic traits that need to be trained and coached i always think it is a professional in their own right in that realms but uh for myself yeah it was just mainly my own individual training uh, that i knew got me through within the my sport that i prepared for these uh selections and it wasn't until i was on selections that that was become a different different mind game then yeah, well, speaking of selections, then, so so now you're in that position. I want to kind of pick apart almost like the chronological career of a first responder. So, firstly, entry testing. You mentioned that when you got hired, you had the traditional, you know, quote unquote fitness tests. Has that changed? And if so, what does that look like now for you guys? Um, from the organization I work with, it hasn't. It's with the base to come into the organisation still has a very low fitness test. And I think that's from most policing organisations I know within Australia has the same thing, a very low, very low interest, entry test. And for me, and I know most of your listeners are, uh, who are the, obviously the strength and conditioning coaches will will attest to this, the lower the standards, the biggest risk we, we're having as uh the community members coming into these organisations with lower physical health to start with. So if we're starting to recruit less fit individuals, then there's going to be back-end issues as they go through. So uh, for me, the having a baseline test that's sub-base to start with is just, it's just not up to scratch. But again, it comes down to uh, 
more or less numbers a numbers game that I see. I've seen for a long time just trying to get numbers in to fill positions because there's so many losing and so many organisations are losing so many police at the time. But then with having that lower standard becomes, as I mentioned, that risk, whether it's a health-based risk or a physical risk with injury. Yeah. Now, what's your philosophy on that? Because, you know, as you personally, because I've had several conversations with, you know, elite performers in all the tactical spaces, and I agree with them completely. If you set the bar high, you actually attract more people because there's that badge of honor of passing, you know, selection process or orientation or, you know, whatever it is, boot camp, um, and, you know, that, that achievement. So, I think that the philosophy that you lower the standards, you get more people, is actually bullshit, and it's the opposite way around. Well, hundred percent agree. I think having a, the high, yeah, it's going to make them more determined individuals themselves to physically be prepared to want to actually get into it, instead of just scraping across the line and then uh, and then coming in with. Uh, and as we know, a lot of different individual traits that we look at is um, being bypassed for so someone that comes and knows they've got to get over a higher bar, they obviously work for that. And then there becomes other disciplinary traits that they can select for the for the individual. Um, so if you're having low standards like myself, you, you are the standards that you walk past. So if you want a low standard, you're going to have a low, low uh, not so much educated, but no, a low physically prepared workforce, then then becomes different other issues in itself. So you look at the leadership qualities if someone hasn't had been exposed to a high physical, um, consistent physical test annual, and if it's subpar, then other things start coming into it. Yeah, well, especially um, I want to really explore on this from your perspective too. But what I see in my career, what the job does to you, you know, whether it's the things we see, whether it's the shifts, which I think are horrendous, whether it's the inability to find clean food, you know, and and then the the lack of motivation as the hormonal changes happen in the men and women. To me, you need that person to be as as fit and strong as possible when they walk through the front door because you're fighting that demise the rest of your career. Yeah, that's right, James. Especially if most academies you go through, then after that there's no uh, annual testing again. So once they go into uh, the academy environment, they get tested there. But then once they're out onto the streets, that's it. They ever get tested again unless they go into the specialist capabilities wanting to get into them kind of fields. Um, so then, as you mentioned, it becomes the 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 exposure to some of these uh, individuals that aren't used to in uh, erratically different sleep patterns, uh, the different foods they're going to have to start consuming. Um, so then the, the health-based stuff really plays a, a critical aspect. So for me, my philosophy, if you don't have your health first, your physical stuff doesn't come anywhere near it afterwards. So... Um, so once they start getting, as we, we all know, that the sleep first, then your nutrition and your hydration and all that kind of stuff down, then you're not going to get stronger if you don't have all that or you're not going to get fitter. Yeah. All right. So then as many people listening, you have a lower bar. You don't have a, you know, a bunch of highly trained men and women that showed up, you know, lean, mean, ready to go, as it were. What are your principles or philosophies on taking that mixed group of candidates that you were just given and forging them into as close a version of the police officer or firefighter that you, you know, are hoping to do? Yeah, that's 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 the next bit. How to then um, get them all on the one 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 page will be the the hard thing. So. 
if you're if you're an instructor or a physical trainer at, at one of these academies and you have all these mixed mixed bunch of uh, males and females and they're coming in with different levels, it's hard. So you can't just throw one into one basket. I mean, you need to train them all physically. At the same thing because then it just becomes a massive disaster for uh, for injury and overtraining. So that becomes like the art of coaching. Obviously, understanding what their uh, the requirements are within learning, within a learning environment coming into the occupation because they've obviously got a lot of class, um, class-based class learning, but also the physical element trying to um, – because a lot of these – the stimulus will be too high in the learning environment. So a lot of these candidates, and I still see them now within coming into our tactical uh, group, is that they're once they are in that learning environment, they're still burning out cognitive. So if they don't have that physical underpinning um, – background to start with they're just getting into an overburning situation which obviously is going to affect their ability to learn so with the foundation like for example the fire service when i've when i've coached i'm not like you know an amazing tactical coach by any means but i really really found that things like sleds sandbags kettlebells were a great tool to mimic fire ground tasks not even exactly but just you know push pull carry drag climb um but it was also very unintimidating for some of the less conditioned, less skilled men and women. With law enforcement, what are some of the kind of go-to movements that, that you find work well in the brand new recruit setting? The um, same thing, just basic movement patterns, uh, as, you, as you touched on, basic movement patterns being done consistently. So not having a, a variety of 600 different movements that some of these individuals uh, might never done a lunge properly, might never done a squat properly before. So it becomes more physical demanding for them then to learn that new skill acquisition into that movement. So it might take time. But as you mentioned, just sticking to the movements that will then hopefully uh, transfer over into their occupational tasks. So we know they've got to be able to sprint, change direction. They've got to have some foundation of, of mobility, some flexibility. Um, we've got to touch on all the different various energy systems. But the, the the part of it that is the catch is when to overload them and when to obviously bring them back and and if you've got a recruit cast that might be a couple of hundred that's going to be a uh, going to be a challenge for the, the trainer within um, to try to try and um, you know, work out which which group to, to put these individuals in before not hopefully breaking them so you can still do some lot of uh, as we've seen at the moment with COVID there's a lot of good body-weighted exercise you can do and the biggest thing I always go back to is changing the tempo with the movement to add that stress so um, you don't need all the, the bells and, and bells and whistles of the, the equipment you just keep the body and changing the body uh, under the tempo and time we'll get the same effect now what about the balance between strength and you know aerobic conditioning I saw you wrote a paper on, on the importance of aerobic conditioning in one group that you were studying so how do you figure out like which type of uh, responder, you're going to work more on strength than which you're going to work more on, on aerobic capacity, for example. Yeah, yeah, that paper was um, with within the, the population I work with with the tactical unit. So um, that's the thing when when they come into a unit like the unit I work with, you've got to have the individual profiling done. So you've got to test and test to know where the individual's at. Um, if you don't test, then it's just uh, you're just going to be guessing with it. So yeah. You, I've found right through, and a lot of uh, 
a lot of your listeners that work within the military and first responder community will attest to that you need to have that big aerobic engine to start with. So that big aerobic engine will be allow you to or the members to recover from them high intensity efforts that are required at times, all the arduous ones where you have to repeat them, them high risk tasks numerous times. So um, so with that, yeah, you need to have a physical testing. And again, that becomes challenging in itself depending on um, – the resources and financial constraints within the unit. Like I, uh, when I initially started, I had really low, low budget, low, low resources to come in with the testing. But now, uh, to where I am today, now I've got a, a fair bit of technology to support that. Um, or less first individual profiling that I get with the um, with the operators once they come in. So, I think yeah, testing is imperative, but just making sure that the individual um, is tested. And so then they know what um, path they need to go on for that specific uh, role they're going to undertake. Now, several of the special operations men and women have had on here all hold police and fire to the same level as themselves. And obviously, what they're required to do, what we're required to do are, are different. There's definitely, you know, um, difference intensities and, and the way they're deployed and all those things. But yeah, I, I kind of subscribe to the same thing. If we're going to be a police officer, then why not be the special operations level of police officer. Why not be a paramedic, not just no CPR? You know, whatever it is, you should be the best version of it. So what is it? Describe to me the difference between one of your elite tactical law enforcement officers versus someone on the street. Yeah, so the, the, the generalist police should have all the foundation modality, physical modalities we've got. So yeah, they need to, need to be quick. They need to have that aerobic base, they need to have that strength, they need to have power, they need to have all that for when they're, they're going hands-on with that non-compliant offender. But the thing where it comes into into the elite groups is, is when you're starting to use different tactics and then different equipment to perform that, that task compared to a generalist. But in saying that, a, a police officer in this day and age within Australia anyway at the moment is the, the equipment that they're carrying as a generalist compared to going back 20, 30 years ago is totally different. And uh, one of um, the professor, Rob Orr, who I've done some work with at the Tactical Research Unit in Australia, his analogy is it's uh, everyone's like the Christmas tree now. So everything's just getting put on top of their vest, everything. So compared to 20 years ago when there was hardly just probably a long baton in their sidearm. But now you've got vests, you've got everything in there. Um, so then that... The metabolic demand on the individual has increased from the from the generalists themselves going back years. So, but the difference into the elite with the tactical groups is definitely the equipment that they're needing to carry and perform the task with, and then how they maintain that musculoskeletal system as strong and as sturdy as for having a long career in there. Um, because I've seen now that there's even operators I've coached for 12 years. To where there are now the ones that uh, that I had at control over with a really good strength conditioning program, they haven't dropped their physical um, preparedness by ten percent, meaning that all their modalities are within that within that realm. But the ones that haven't had that really good foundation of strength uh, and conditioning specifically and and consistently, they're the ones that are always injured. Unfortunately, they're the ones who always been left alone to their own devices where they might have been the runners or the other end of the spectrum. They might have been the, um, the powerlifters that they've trained uh, either end of the spectrum. And what's your philosophy on, on aging within those professions? Now, 
you know, I think when people kind of get a little scared when you talk about keeping it the same standard, my, my philosophy is in the fire service, that ladder's not going to get lighter because I'm 46. You know what I mean? It's going to stay the same weight. However, you know, I, I'm not saying that people should be deadlifting 500 pounds and, you know, snatching 200 either. So there is that, you know, that, that occupational load that needs to be addressed, whether it's taking 100 pounds worth of gear up a high rise or, you know, like I said, throwing a ladder. Um, but I see some organizations where like, well, they're this age now, so we got to make it easier. And, and I, I kind of disagree with that. I was like, if you want to go work behind a desk, then, then absolutely. But if you're going to be using the tools that we need to in our profession, you need to be able to operate them the same way, basically, as a 20-year-old next to you. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, James. It's just, it's about tasks. So you're either capable to perform that physical task or you're not. Now, what if you're not, what are the risks of that? And I know there's a massive amount of risks. So from, for myself being a prior into working these specialist groups, I know if my teammate, the one next to me, I want to know that they're at their physical best condition day in, day out to actually you know, be able to handle these tasks that we're, we're given in, in critical situations. So... Um, you're right there with um, a lot of the analogies like if you've got the same bit of uh, equipment to move and move it quick and if you've got someone that's next to you cannot do that now what are the risks of that so you're looking at and, and this is an important part of my role which I take very very um, uh, yeah, I put a lot of emphasis in it is, is, is that profiling so if I've got an operator that's coming in off a just off a selection course coming into his skills course now and he's 70 kilos now, and, and the rest of the, the course coming in might be 80 to 90 and physical repair. Now, this, this individual might be at that 70 kilos, but then once we start adding 20 and 30 kilos of weight to his weight, if he doesn't have that underpinning maximal strength and force to handle that, well, I'm going to see a massive bleed effect and the amount of injuries over this year, two years, three years that this individual is going to get because it's going to break down. Okay, so turning that around now, so you know we've identified there should be you know consistency in the skills and the profession. How do you coach the aging athlete, and I mean you know through their career to ensure that they are able to do something fifteen, twenty years later that they could when they first came on? So the big thing for me is the education. So analyzing what the physical demands are within the role, uh, with it, and then educating especially the the new ones coming in that haven't had no, no influence from external biases with a lot of training methods. So um, so the, compared to the older guys, the older guys that are staying in at the moment, like some of the average ages that I'm working with at the moment, uh, we're looking at the squad around 39 to 40 for the unit. So and then we've got a vast age group from 22 right up to the old, eldest operators, probably 55. So the way I train the 22-year-old to the 25 is totally different, but then they've got to perform the same tasks and the same job in the, in the critical stress. So um, so that becomes a balancing act between volume and intensities with training. So a lot of the, some of these op- operators can't do as much on feet just due to post-injuries uh, with previous injury, sorry, with, with knees, ankles and that. But then I can get some other conditioning and load off feet without them being, uh, being exposed to them forces through the um, – Ankle, knee, and hip, hip, uh, hip regions. But then we've got to be make, making sure, on the other hand of it, that uh, the 22-year-old is able to recover a bit better, is getting enough stimulus to actually uh, to progress, and making sure that that is set between certain standards that I uh, I want him to be in. 
Right. Now, with uh, you touched on injury. That's a very important thing. And I know for me, that is something as a 46-year-old is I've got a back that I rehab with no surgery and everything. It was amazing. and it But it takes work. If I don't do certain movement practices, it starts to hurt. I, I feel that injury kind of rearing its ugly head. And then I had meniscus snips on both knees as well. So I know as, as an athlete now at my age that it's absolutely doable, but it does take more work. So what is your philosophy with some of your your, um, your tactical professionals when they get hurt as far as rehabbing them and getting them back to, to the job? Yeah, well, uh, there's a group that, that you see the, the consistent individuals that more or less I, I call them the rehabbers where they've because of their previous um, physical training history where they've just been able to get in get in to the areas without uh, covering that whole strength bias to start with, laying the foundations, they just keep coming back through that cycle. So I always put the analogy, you're conditioned to run, you, you don't run to condition. You know what I mean? So for me, that strength underpinning has got to be there first before we start handling all these external stresses to the to the body. Um so with that, that you just got to make sure that the individual again is is up to uh, up to the task, and then looking at their age. So with the age, that some some of the stimulus that some of the older guys uh, need to get might only be uh, a few sessions a week compared to um, some of the youngers, as I touched on before, where they'll be uh, they'll be given three or four or five sessions depending on uh, where they're at. But the big, big thing is, and we know in this community, it's, it's shoulders, knees, and um, and lower back are the bigger, biggest weak points. Um, so it's got to make sure that I know how to strengthen their particular joints and the musculoskeletal system around them, and just making sure that they're ready to uh, to perform their job. Right. So I guess one thing I haven't done very well is ask you to explain what your role is and what what your work environment is. Where we are in the U.S., you know, it's a lot of some of the bigger counties obviously may have better facilities, but a lot of the smaller cities, you know, they just have gyms in the station if they're lucky. And if they get hurt, they go through workman's comp, go to the local, you know, osteopath or um, orthopedic surgeon, and then cycle through the local rehab facility that in my case, where I live, is going to be mainly 70 and 80 year olds rehabbing broken hips. And then you go back to work. So there's not really an understanding of the the demands of a firefighter of a police officer especially if you train in the way that the very first call you get when you come back might be a 28 story high rise fire so tell me about you know your role and the facilities that you have to enable your men and women to to get the best training not to get hurt and then the best rehab if they do get hurt yeah so my role obviously is the strength conditioning coach so I'm attached to one of the the tactical units at present within Australia and so my role is yep day in day out while they're they're there to perform that strength conditioning program Um, so the unfortunate part of the area that I work in the moment we don't have an in-house rehabilitation model or performance model such as like we know in sport where we know in, in pro sport, you might have three or four strength conditioning coaches. Then you've got your athletic trainers, which we probably call physiotherapists here in Australia. Um, then you've got a head of the performance. So at the moment, it's just myself. Now, if there's injuries and in that, I uh, deal with external providers under uh, under the medical. So I could be dealing with 17 different physios at a time, depending on um, where the members go to to get their uh, 
their rehab to. So it becomes quite challenging. And then that's another issue in itself, educating them physiotherapists external about the, the, the demands of the occupation compared to a pro sport or a sporting model where they need to get back to. So, uh, so my role is pretty critical. Um, Within, within the area, knowing that I've got an ageing population, as we discussed, uh, especially within my unit, looking around the 40 years of age and making sure that uh, we are going to get more more service out of, our, out of our members. But it's a balancing act uh, daily within the shifts and within the times and their skills training, what their skills training are doing, so making sure that the, the model is uh, working the best it can be with, uh, with the resources you've got. Now, Mick, Mick discussed in, in the interview about how successful his, you know, division was and, and how they'd saved and shown they'd saved the department a huge amount of money. Um, so have you, have you had that same kind of thing where you are by actually hiring or, or, you know, transitioning one of your skilled strength and conditioning coaches to now only do that? Has, has that shown a knock on effect to actually save money in the department? It has. It, it, when I first went into the unit um, over 10 years ago, more or less the, the unit was uh, self-managed. So more or less the higher injury rates, whenever there's going to be self-managed physical training, there's always going to be that added risk because everyone wants to try and back to what they're used to and what they want to do. So uh, once I started coming in and, and, and training, putting in the SNC methodology specific to to the occupation and I was able to get another good S&C coach, the two of us were on deck and we eliminated lower limb injuries within the first 12 months by over 90%. So, and that were a lot of overuse injuries and that. So we reduced the, same as uh, what Mick probably told you, we reduced a lot of that workplace physical training injuries, which was just done from overuse within there. So more or less my position and the S&C uh, positions were we're paying for themselves, so to speak. So, um, so if there's any any bosses or commanders or anyone with the ability that are listening to employ the physical therapist and having that internal model within the organisation, I um, I say to you, it's a must to to make sure uh, to look after the physical health of uh, these first responders because you can have all the Gucci equipment and tools and of the trade, but once the uh, the individual that's uh, utilizing this goes, then you've got nothing. Yeah, and that's something that I talked about someone the other day that I think would is the underlying issue of many of the problems we're seeing, especially in our professions, is the word false economy, or the words, I guess, is too. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, is you know, there there are there are things like you said, lowering the hiring standard, or in in the fire service, especially the 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 work week, fifty six hour work week in most of America. You know, on paper, it's like, well, we only have budget for this, and it makes me look good this fiscal year. You know, but the reality is long term it's far more expensive to you know like you said if it's the lower bar you're going to get more mistakes at work you're going to get more people hurt you're going to get more civilians killed if it's um you know the work week then these men and women are not getting any sleep and they're not getting rest and recovery they're going to get hurt they're going to make mistakes they're going to crash their vehicles so it, the more people we hear like you where they've invested at the front end and then are testifying hey this actually works i hope we'll get to a critical mass where people realize I may not look good in my budget year as chief or administrator, but I'm investing in this department. So five or 10 years from now, this department's going to be fiscally more sound and the, you know, the, the, the men and women's health mentally and physically is going to be so much better than it is now. 
That's right, and then it's uh, it, it, as you touched on about the the insurances and the you know the injuries and and it has a, a, a two twofold effect right along. So then it links into the, the family. So then it goes outside of that too. So the members are the mental health with it. So um, wherever yeah, there can be an opportunity for a, a department to then get some expertise in to assist or help with uh, the organisations where they can. It's it's a win-win situation. There's never going to be a negative out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just touched on mental as well. It's something we haven't really discussed. I, I know personally from hurting my back specifically, there is a mental cost to getting hurt. You go from, you know, uber tactical athlete, tactical professional, you know, fighting fire, making rescues, cutting people out of cars to I can barely even get out of bed. I can't pick up my son. I can't make love to my wife. I can't do fucking anything. And there is absolutely a mental toll to that. So is there a mental health component into what you do specifically? Or do you, you know, do you work alongside practitioners to make sure that your men and women are taken care of on the mental side as well? Yeah, the, the organization has our own embedded uh, psychologists. So, um, yeah, so there's an opportunity there for the members to reach out to the psychologists, but it's up to the rapport. That's the biggest thing, the rapport of our operators and them with the psychologists themselves. So, um, as you probably know, there's a lot of times where the gym environment uh, allows these operators, if they've got a good rapport with you as a coach, which they, which they do, my members with myself, they'll probably start outlaying to you on the floor, on the floor in the gym. So I find a lot of times, whether it's in the afternoon after certain days where where you just start becoming into a uh, having conversations with the guys while they're in the, in the middle of doing back squats or whatever, they're just starting to um, outpour certain things. So I think the rapport as a coach can never be uh, underestimated, even though there's certain lanes I stick in because I'm a coach foremost and I go outside of uh, – in my lanes, but you still got to be there to listen, and because uh, that could affect what you're trying to get out of in that in that session, in that physical session. So the head might be right. So then that's that's important to having that two-way uh, communication with them and rapport, because um, there's no use just staying stringent to a session you might have if there's all these external factors that are playing playing with their minds. Yeah, and I've had a, a few um, guests on here as well. Um, who one of them has a, an organization in South Africa and they take street kids, you know, like parentless orphans basically, and teach them how to surf. And then after they're done surfing, they sit on the, the beach and then they do a counseling session with these kids. They've had, you know, fresh air, sunshine, the ocean, exertion, um, you know, so now they are so much more open. And I think I've seen it as a coach in my gyms. You know, if and it'll be the more gentle sessions. There's no, not many people that want to open up after Murph. They just want to barf after <laughs> Murph. But, but I'll do sometimes. We have like a four-story um, parking garage here, and then we'll do a sandbag carry. We'll we'll carry it all the way there, go up up to the top, and then we'll just stand there. It's an out, outdoor space at the top floor, looking over the city, and I'll, and we'll just go one by one. You know, tell me tell me why you started CrossFit. Tell me the things that you struggle with. Tell me the things that you enjoy. And it's amazing how they open up. So, yeah, I think the coach's um, position, if you gain trust from the people that you're coaching, absolutely there's a mental health element to that too. Yeah, that's right. It's not uh, just by handing out a simple program template and say, off you go, here, here you go, because it doesn't matter if you never have that rapport or that that mutual respect or that, that program is never going to do any good. So, um, yeah, it all interlinks. Yeah. Well, speaking of relationships, tell me about Precinct 177. 
Yeah, Precinct 177 was a uh, – come from originally when I first um, debuted in professional sport and rugby league, um, the club that I was – was out at the time so when you debut you get a you get a number so I debuted and my number was 177 um, so coming on now in the last few years uh, in the gym facility our work um, there was one day I, I come into the gym early in the morning before everyone else and I seen on these we got three or four big whiteboards jammed together and I seen this big graffiti uh, um, slogan on there and it said uh the coach's house uh, precinct 177 and so uh that was done in 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 different colors and all up all that there so that actually was a pretty special moment for myself because um just knowing that uh sometimes the, the influence you have on on these on these operators and the effect of it so that was just a little little thing to say, okay, yep, um, I think now that, yeah, what I deliver actually gets across to them and there's, there's that respect. So that was the uh, Precinct 177 and it's still in there today actually uh, situated in the gym. Brilliant. Well, talking about that ripple effect, um, again, another term the special operations community uses is a force multiplier. They, they don't often go and pick up a weapon, just be part of an army. They go into a nation and train an entire army, you know, but, um, and I kind of saw this even with me retiring out the fire service to do this. You know, I could run one, one call at a time on the engine or the rescue and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But this reaches thousands of people per episode. So, you know, who then many are our rescuers who then are going to change things from all the guests they hear and then go on, hopefully, and have a long and fruitful career saving thousands of people themselves. So one of the the kind of groups that you help train were um, part of the rescue team for the Thai soccer team um, that got trapped in the cave. So I know there's some areas that you can't talk about, but just lead me through the preparation side and just some of the information of that rescue that you are allowed to tell us. Yeah, so the, with the Thai, uh, Thai cave rescue, it's, oh, it's just over two years now. I think it was uh, July 2018. Um, and... In amongst the international response, the organisation I work with was requested by the Thai government to to assist. So our unit, our tactical unit, we've got uh, three tactical dive dive members as part of our capability, and uh, they were requested to to go and uh, provide uh, assistance to the Thai Thai seal divers. And um, like I mentioned, amongst um, Many other international divers. Uh, so they uh, uh, they uh, went over to to Thailand for the period of time to assist in uh, rescuing those uh, 12, 12 boys and the coach. Now some of the uh, some of the terrain. I'm not too sure if you've seen the terrain that they had to get to with the uh, with the monsoonal weather at the time was pretty arduous. Yeah, so what about the, the preparation? Tell me the kind of equipment that they had to carry and, and, and you know, the distance they had to carry it. Yeah, so with dive kits, it, it varies. Um, and, you know, yourself with oxygen uh, cylinders, they can be weighing 35 pounds. Uh, so some of our tactical divers, they uh, the kit they carried was generators. So it was more or less from where their command, command post was. It was probably a kilometre hike up uh, some of these hills, which was slippery slopes. Um so it was more or less when they had all the dive kit around 40 kilos of equipment that they were carrying at one time, plus 
having to uh, ferry all these oxygen cylinders uh, up to the up to the cave entrance. Um, so their main job was obviously to to bring up the supplies to to the cave and assist the uh, the navy uh, navy Thai navy seal divers. Uh, so I think our members had uh, the caves. I think there were chambers one to four to help and assist at the time. Um, so it, it was a post that um, that event. Speaking to our divers that went, then the biggest thing that they come back and spoke to me, and I, I was fairly interested because obviously I had a fair bit to do with their their annual physical pre- preparation was the low carriage ability, the ability of being strong and just continuously moving uh, under them adverse conditions on slippery slopes. So. Um, so for me, the feedback was pretty good. So I made, obviously, I've made part of my program for a very long time to have that underpinning strength and ability to carry awkward loads at various times to prepare our um, our members. Um, and one of the members at the time, um, probably leading up to a month prior to that, one of our our senior tactical divers, he had a. Uh, a reconstructed foot injury at the time, so going back probably 12 months prior to being called to the uh, to the Thai cave rescue, I spent you know, nine months rehabbing him back from having one of his ligaments in his foot um, reconstructed. So it, that was a a, a really a, a testament there that he got through that and the importance of having that really good reconditioning process and strength conditioning coach within within the unit to make sure they're able to go back to um, perform their, their high-risk tasks. And as it was um, to happen, not long after he went back operationally, um, this dive event happened and where he was having to put force through that foot and be confident enough to carry that external load up them arduous hills and, and into the caves and just do it repetitively, repetitively over them weeks of uh, that they were there without um, re-injuring it. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, another element that I haven't, you know, brought up yet but i think this is the perfect time to do it i know you know those guys weren't the ones like all the way to the end you know where the where the children were but the fear the element the the mental resilience i i find that you know some of these high intensity workouts are a great way of fostering resilience especially in 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 environmental stresses like bunker gear you know where you're overheating as well um how do you help foster mental resilience in some of these elite performers that you work with yeah, I think it, it, a lot of that, they select themselves getting into these units with a lot of that mental resilience at times, but there's still times where I ex- expose them through certain physical sessions that we actually keep pushing one another and working in that group environment, but it's them themselves that obviously they they, they, they look at them, the situations within them sessions to, to just take time to to really analyse after we might be doing a, for example, if we're doing a high intensity sprint session or a work capacity session, it's it's educating and, and, and coaching them in between the rest periods where they're actually feeling themselves at that time. So, and you know yourself when you're training, it's it's that that reinforcing of how how your body language is after that certain repetition or after that certain high intensity effort. Where is my mindset during that time? And so. I think that's a, a thing that you can either have and how you, it's built within you to deal with um, and just being exposed to it more often then becomes, I suppose, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, with, as the old saying um, says. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that as well, um, 
What is your philosophy on realism in training? Because again, that's something I see in usually the environments with the low bar, the the entry point is even even the training is kind of dumbed down. You know, oh, well, we don't want to push them too hard. They, you know, they haven't been working out recently, or it's the first time we've done this for a while. I subscribe to the opposite. You know, with ample rest and recovery and, and rehydration and cooling practices, but. You know, the, the training ground should be the worst thing you've ever seen and you fall to your level of training. So whatever you see in the real world, just like a, you know, an MMA fighter sees in the cage should be equal or less to what you've been preparing for. What is your philosophy on, on realism and pushing people on, on the actual training ground? Not so much in the gym, but, you know, with a, with a weapon in their hand or a fire hose in their hand. Yeah, well, they've got to be uh, assessed and, and constantly challenged with, the, the stimulus response stuff that links with, uh, I think on the past uh, podcast, Dan would have went into a lot of that stuff where he's doing um, a lot of great work with his studies about the uh, linking that mind and where, where it's at with the, the physical stress um, components of it. So you, you do have to be exposed to that uh, consistently because if you, if you don't, then that's where that's where the, the ability of your body will adapt to not being ex- exposed to them stresses. So, yeah, there is a good physical part of it. But uh, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a skill element profession and you've got to be good at your skills and tactics and have the mindset to link into that to uh, get the job done when no one else is going to put their hand up or be called upon to do it. Absolutely, because lives depend on you. Yeah, and just, just with that, I mean, and with the physical part of it also, that, you, yeah, you do need to get the binds, they do need to be exposed to high-intensity stuff and... And to really be pushed consistently because if they don't get exposed to all of that, so when they actually break down or get injured, that they, you know, that they're coming back not through a consistent rehab or cycle, meaning that if they don't maintain a certain high level of physical readiness, then I don't want to see them consistently come back through that reconditioning group over and over and over again. So it's a very important once they're up there that we stay and maintain that physical operational readiness. Yeah. Now going back to your earlier years, now where you are with all this experience, not only on the floor, but now as a coach as well, what do you see some of the differences between the sporting athlete and the tactical professional? Um, the, the, the difference is that, uh, yeah, the, the athletes only got a certain amount of time and they go in the day and then they know they're out of there the day. So the biggest difference is with all first responders and as you know, doing shift work and, and the, the, the stress is involved. It's 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 chalk and cheese. Um, you know, they, they come in there. They're in a, a nice environment where they're more or less protected in that environment. They, they've got all the coaches and all the resources around them. But um, the first responder community, it, it just lacks all. As you know, the, the health part of things. There's always the exposure to eat crap foods. There's the exposure to do no no exercise, no physical exercise, and there's all the the external risk compared to the uh, the athlete that's more or less in that bubble that they can go into. Then they just leave that bubble and they uh, they head home. So um, there's a massive difference, and and there's a massive difference um, uh, with with the mindsets of the athlete compared to, to the operators. Brilliant. Now, going to the recovery side now, we talked about pushing them you know, to, to the extremes at, at times. I didn't realize how important recovery was till I started really exploring, really with this podcast. It was actually a, a Navy SEAL who became a physician and realized that sleep deprivation was what was causing a lot of ill health to hit the, the, teal, the uh, 
SEAL team that he went back to, he joined them as their doctor, that really opened my eyes to sleep deprivation in first responders. So that was probably five years ago now. Um, from your perspective, as, as on your position in your department, what have you seen as far as the importance of sleep on performance and long-term health in your tactical population? Yeah, uh, yeah. Recovery is is at the forefront of all education, as you mentioned. With um, especially in, in my role, uh, the burnout from you know the shift works, the cons- consistent long shifts, um, the lack of sleep. I, I see a big one is that some of the operators think once they're out, but out of that shift routine, but they're still on call, that, that's downtime to rest. But the, the problem that they're not seeing at the time is they're still worrying about their phones and that going off and, and beeping. So they're actually not not regulating back. So even if they're on call for seven or eight days after they're, they're not at work, they're still their minds are not switching off. So they're still in a burning effect. So by the time they come back to them shifts, they're still, they're still heightened. So... So it's a big education thing there about, uh, from my perspective, talking to some of the, the senior team leaders and that about the, at best, where they can, having that uh, the influence on that roster changing just due to that fact of uh, being on call, your still mind is not switching off. Now, with other, other recovery components, little different bits and pieces that I whack in myself within within the education side of things, I might just come up with a simple 100-point system over the week that I want the operators to look at. So more or less over that week, they might have uh, five or six different things to look at. So number one, obviously, eight hours plus a night's sleep. They might get 15 points on on that category. The second one might be uh, quality of, um, of a, a low recovery pool session. So if they go after after work and spend half an hour in the pool, they get another 10%. And then on top of that, another uh, their nutrition and their fuel. So if they're fueling straight after work and then they their, their hydration's up, they'll give, us, give themselves another another 10 and then wearing compressions and certain other recovery tools to assist. So I'll come up with little feedback sheets with that. So it's more of a self-awareness to make sure um, they're trying to best get some of this point system structure in place to help them with their own recovery. Right. Well, you mentioned a good point as well, like immediately after shift. And it's something that I, it was was a coach actually that made me aware of this originally, but punctuating the shift. When, when we, you know, finish whatever shift as a fireman, as a police officer, whatever it is, we're in responder mode. We're in rescue mode. And for you guys, you're, you know, you're in a different kind of hypervigilance because people are literally trying to kill you. At least it's normally buildings that are trying to kill us. But, um, so what, what do you suggest to your, um, you know, your professionals as far as making that transition from being in the uniform to back being the dad, the husband, whatever it is, or the, or the wife? Yeah, it depends. And, you know, the shift uh, years ago, it used to be whether you did eight night, night work in a row, whether it was eight or 10 hours shift and the, the shift patterns. Um, I think that the organizations, and this is just personally, need to sort out a really good shift patterning to best that they can do to have a look at the workforce and especially looking at the age and the ability for the individual to recover from that. So on site, whether you, you could have a five-day turnaround, probably a five-day turnaround um, at the back of that, if you could really, because I know myself personally, after coming off the shifts, it's probably two or three days until you started to unwind. So 
if you had rest days or periods, but depending on how much um, hours you've got to put in a week, whether it's a minimum 40-hour week or how you work that out, it's a, it's a tricky thing. But really, you know, a, a week is, is when you start to really to regulate back from, uh, from my perspective and my experiences of uh, before going back on shift again. So you really want to be back, like you mentioned, with your family and totally switching off from everything. Uh, with your children to play to then be able to handle the bloody stresses as they come back in again once you come back in and clock on for that um, next shift yeah and i agree completely i mean that it's 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 such a kind of algebraic um discussion when people talk about shifts and and to me what they're missing is you need adequate staffing whether it's police fire dispatch whatever it is to allow these men and women that you've asked to stay up all night while you sleep safely in your bed to then be able to recover so they can get as close to zero, close to baseline again, so that they're not creating long-term disease, which we want to talk about in a second. And they're also cognitively functioning so they're not going to mistakenly shoot your teenage son while he reaches for his driving license. Mm. Yeah, and 100%. And even looking at uh, the selection processes of within the tackle units is having adequate break after a selection course. So there's been a lot of research about how long I mean, ours is only uh, a seven-day course or five to seven-day really arduous uh, selection course, but some of the um, the candidates going for that might take them months and months and months to, to recover. So then uh, their shift supervisors back in the generalist uh, policing wanting them to be on the road within another week or less than a week from attending these selection courses, which is just is just ludicrous. So, and even from then going on into a reinforcement or a skill cycle after, after a, an arduous seven seven day selection course, you need to have a, a few months at least, whether it's eight to twelve weeks off, to let that body readapt to come back down because it's just uh, then they're going into a learning uh, cycle again. They're just going to be burnt out. So. How's their ability to learn and process information and, like you mentioned, perform physical tasks or shooting or tactics or anything? They're, they're exposed to stimulus response situations where they're just going to be burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I wasn't aware either that, you know, the birds and ranger selection, all these ones they do, they have a completely, um, you know, deregulated few weeks where they, I mean, they're still attending, whether it's class, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but they go from hell week to, you know, a few weeks of rest and recovery and they eat and they rehab and they get everything treated before they then go into the, the next skill portion of their training. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the, the, the body's funny and it's individual and, and the older you are, the longer it is, it takes you to recover um, from that. So it's, it's just imperative that there's got to be some down, down spot um, in, in amongst that before they go into that learning environment to uh to get the body back to as much normal function as it can be. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on one more area before we transition to close, but um, the long-term health effects. You know, any of us in this field now are fully aware that, you know, the sleep deprivation, the shifts, um, you know, the the trauma to the body, inability, inability to recover not only creates injury, but physiological injuries so i think that's where we see a lot of the obesity the heart disease the diabetes and then sadly the cancers as well now in 2015 you lost a close brother so tell me about kind of his journey and and, and you know how how that was attributed you think to his job yeah I, uh, yeah 2015 i lost a really good friend and a, a, a work colleague and to most of the 
the guys uh, are still operating within the unit. Uh, he's succumbed to, to bowel cancer um, at ages, I think it was 40 years at the time uh, that he passed away. And I had a, a good relationship with, with John at the time because um, I was directional staff on his selection course of him actually coming into the to the tactical unit and because um, John was a, a big, uh, Tongan individual, big man at well, well over 100 kilos, um, six foot three, really big individual. Um, at the time, he was prior to coming into the tactical unit, he was in more or less our public order and uh, right kind of um, position. So the the physical change that he had to make um, to come and drop size and drop weight to actually get into a position where he knew he'd be able to handle our week long selection course was. Uh, was a big thing, and I had a big part in physically preparing John for that. Um, and post that, yeah, he was uh, probably one of the only <clears throat> only uh, operators that over my ten years he was around that hundred hundred kilo mark, a bit over that, to actually get through our selection course. Um, so yeah, I had a big influence on John's preparation to get in. But then uh, once once in, that uh, we become quite close with just due to our physical training and that together. And, yeah, it wasn't until around that 2014 that through a conversation that uh, I had for John, um, I'll still remember it, uh, I was in the gym and he said, yeah, that he had uh, bowel, bowel cancer. So that really resonated and hit, hit with myself and all our close mates within the unit. And it's still pretty hard to, to talk about certain things with, about John to this day, but... Um, because I've become a, a really, really, it was a really hard time after certain surgeries that John had that I was involved in a lot of his um, reconditioning and rehab perspective. So our bond really cemented because of a lot of one-on-one time that I had, had with John, and, John at that time. Um, so again, that the importance of having um, a position within a coach and that in there with that uh, – Within that uh, environment, I was discussed for any chiefs, police, as we know, all the commanders to employ because, uh, yeah, it was, it's an important part, but, um, yeah, it was a hard thing to sort of uh, deal with in and out, and especially with his, what he was going through. But I, the thing that hit with me the most was that, yeah, well, I'm the strength and conditioning coach. I had control over how I could physically prepare John for the job. You know, I mean, I could sort of get him up to where he needed to be, so I had sort of control aspects of that. But what I didn't control, which really, really fucking pissed me at the time, was that I couldn't um, control the disease he had, or either could he. And, it, and that, you know, still, yeah, it just touches uh, a nerve at the time within you. And there's a lot of times where we trained and afterwards I just looked at John and he looked at it and it's just times where we, we embraced, we hugged and there was times after a lot of, uh, reconditioning sessions I did with him, where he went off his way into the into the uh, into the office and did his other things throughout the the uh, day. But I actually went and had a shower. I just broke down a lot of times, and it's the first time I spoke about this. There's the times where I just yeah had that really good bond, but I knew I was I fucking couldn't do anything else um, with him, which was really really a hard thing. Yeah, and, and I've had that same experience with several friends, you know, where where I am. I had one that was 24 years old 
who succumbed to cancer and another one to autoimmune disease that was my age, you know, and another one that was a different type of cancer. So that's what's infuriating. And I totally get where you're coming from with a coach, like, you know, as, as a coach and then as a firefighter paramedic, we're trained to fix things, you know, whether it's someone's, you know, lifestyle or whether it's pulling them out of a burning building or, or, a, you know, a smashed up car. But what really needs to be put out there? And I think that, you know, again, the shifts holding people up to, you know, to allow them to be worked or even overworked in some of our professions rather than the opposite. Um, we're seeing a huge amount of heart disease. We're seeing a huge amount of cancer deaths. And I argue, you know, right now we know that the average first responder dies about five years after retirement, about 12 years younger than the average civilian. Um, and what I think people don't understand is that grinder, that draw ground where those men and women are standing when they're brand new, especially if it's a place that has held their entry standards high, they're some of the most resilient, fit men and women in that whole county, city, wherever they are. And they're still dying so much younger, you know? So really that lifespan should have been a lot longer than the average person. So knowing that some areas we can improve, you know, some areas that we can make it safer for these men and women that are literally sacrificing their lives every day for their community, that maybe we could have saved their lives if we hadn't worked them into the fucking ground and we'd actually created a work week that would allow them to recover fully, allow them to thrive, not expose them to certain, you know, carcinogens. That to me is the next step as well. You've got the short term injury and all that stuff. You've got the mental health element, but you've also got the long term. We shouldn't be killing our firefighters and police officers. You know, they should have a long, fruitful retirement after they've served. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and it's uh, as yeah we've come to it now. It's health first, and um, yeah, but the physical stuff is second, and it's just uh, it's it's an onus on the organisations within to listen to the experts, listen to the researchers in the fields. If you've got links with universities or any good researchers that are out there to do the best thing for our uh, for our members to link in and in with our strength and conditioning coaches and and with the the members on the ground themselves to come up with some really good processes to, um, like you mentioned, give longevity, but after their career to be able to have a good retirement with their family and kids, not a burnout retirement or, or the effects of mental health or, or where there are there's certain things that, as you mentioned, that we can control of, uh, have control of that doesn't affect them uh, after they finish their career. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more, and I'm so sorry that you lost your friend. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, James. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, you've been so generous with your time. The first one that I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, it's just a recent one. It's by uh, another UK uh, individual, The Art of Resilience by Ross Edgley. Um, he seems to be a bit of a freak of nature. So, um have you spoken to Ross at all? I've been trying to get him on the show, but he's yeah. uh, he's very high demand. He's been on Joe Rogan and all those things. But I, I will yeah. get him. I'm I'm a dogmatic motherfucker sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> so. But yeah, I think I think he would be absolutely amazing. I think the parallels between him and the first responder professions are you know uh, enthralling. Yeah, so uh, that's one I'd uh, I'd recommend that that book currently. Brilliant. And then what about a, a film? A film, um, oh, uh, I always go <laughs> back for me. I always to love growing up. For me, this is personally the uh, 
the Rocky trilogy. It might sound silly and that too, but I grew up with a lot of things uh, around Sly Stallone and that. So um, with all that kind of stuff, he's Rambo First Blood. I used to like their movies and I still do and all the Rocky trilogies. It was just, the, I think, the sporting, the uh, the mindset thing, looking at the uh, preparation physical-wise with uh, the boxing. So, yeah, I'd say the uh, Rocky trilogies for me. Yeah, don't, don't be ashamed of that. I think that's the most, nah. um, you know, most... Uh, it's the answer that comes up the most of all the guests. I think that's the underdog. You know, I think people, no matter if they're Navy SEALs or police officers or whatever they are now, I think we all relate to that underdog. And a lot of us take on these professions to to beat bullies. And I think that's what that story tells very well. Yep, 100%. Brilliant. What about documentaries? Any of those that you've seen that you'd recommend? Um, yeah, I'm not really into much of the, the documentaries. Um yeah, so I just mainly uh, readings a thing for me, and um, at the moment, and time spending time with the kids, so as much time as I can get away from uh, the TV, or yeah, not much into the documentaries. No worries. All right. Well, next question: um, Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, Shane Irving. Uh, Shane Irving had a. Uh, a good influence on my career and he was a, an ex-operator within the tactical units as well and uh and he could talk about his uh he was more or less up as a manager officer in charge kind of role within first responders so he'll be good and he's just starting out now um uh some of his own personal uh businesses and that within helping the first responder community um so yeah he'll be a good person to, to touch base with Excellent. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? Um, train, <laughs> physical train. Um, it's not a bad thing, some physical training, so I don't mind going on morning and uh, just getting away from, from everything, whether it's down the oval or going for a run or um, just to unwind. So that might never have a performance-based outcome with it, but the other way is just spending time with my family. So as soon as I'm away from work, I've got four four beautiful young kids and a wife that support me uh, immensely. So as much time now as they're growing up, um, I've got the youngest is four and the eldest is up to 14 years of age. So as much as I can get involved in their interactions in, in, in growing up in this uh, very complex society, um, yeah, so whether it's 10-bin bowling, going away, whatever they do, so we choose something they want to do on the weekend and spending time with them, that's... Uh, that's the way I just uh, I get away from things. Brilliant. Yeah, that's another one of the most you know stated answers to, and I think that's it. If you've got a good family, then they're decompressing. A few people have told me that their their families add stress to their lives, <laughs> but most of us. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we've done some homeschooling during COVID times. Let me tell you, so that yeah, that challenged uh, the challenges a bit, uh, but no. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last thing, if people want to reach out to you, find you online, where are the best places? Uh, just through uh, Jeremy underscore MXA underscore performance. That's just on Instagram. Um, that's the best way at the moment to, uh, to get in contact with me. Um, obviously, you might have some information as well on, on your uh, on your podcast and your site where people can look up some of the work that uh, I've done or how they want to get in contact with me um, that way. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, every time I get someone on here, it's a different perspective, you know, and then, and then talking to Dan and then him recommending you and, you know, just, it, it's, 
to me, it's invaluable. The more we layer all these issues, the more different perspectives we see and all these lines intersect. It really highlights to people, look, this, this is, this is real, whether it's injury, whether it's strength training, whether it's preventing losing friends to cancer. Um, and you know, your perspective is another invaluable story that I'm so happy that we got to hear. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Yeah, no, thanks very much, James, for being on a professional podcast. Um, I've listened to so many to actually now be on it. It's, uh, it's been a privilege, and thanks again.